And welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into the tactical side of Major League Soccer. I'm your host, Joe Lowry, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jordan Angeli. Jordan, it's been a little while. How are you? I'm doing well, Joe. Yeah, you've been holding it down. Great interview last week with Yohan Demay. Yohan was really generous with his time and allowed me to kind of go over a lot of different topics from his career, growing up in France as a young coach over there without playing professionally, then moving over to Canada and the U.S. And it was just a really interesting conversation that selfishly, and yes, I am a little biased, I do think is worth going back and listening to for our listeners yeah. if you haven't done that already. So we had fun. You know what? You know what you like? You got to love as an interviewer is when the interviewee was like, it's a great question. <laughs> You said that multiple times, so hats off to you. I appreciated that from you on, first of all. And Jordan, our listeners don't know this behind the scenes, but you helped me get together questions for that episode. So I'm going to take that as a total team win for MLS Assist and not just a win for me as that individual interviewer. Okay, so you're telling me that I'm giving myself a compliment too? I'm telling you that you gave me a compliment and I'm turning it back around oh, to you. That's like what that. we're doing okay. here. Okay, that feels that feels more <laughs> natural, but that's okay. I'll, ta- I'll take it either way. No, it was great. I really enjoyed it. I'm glad. And just to let our listeners know, Jordan, in a time where a lot of us have been not having as much to do and not working on as many projects, you've gone in the complete opposite direction <laughs> with a lot of different things that you're working on right now, a lot of very cool projects that you've been a part of. Why don't you just take a second here and let our listeners know what you've been working on in this sort of downtime? Yeah, I felt like it exactly that kind of the complete opposite. I looked at this as just an opportunity to continue some of the things that I love to do. And I am working also on the U.S. Soccer podcast. It's brand new, launched last week. And that's going to give me an opportunity as a broadcaster to continue developing my interview skills and how I can, you know, listen to what people are saying to me and try to drag something a little bit more out of a story that maybe we don't normally get. So really excited with about that. I get to work with Charlie Davies on that podcast for U.S. Soccer. And then I also am working in the women's side of the game. And I am hosting a show called NWSL Live. It's on Facebook on Thursday nights. And I, since I played in NWSL and played in the women's game for years, I just wanted to continue to be involved. And this has been something that I have wanted to do for a while. And I've worked with Jeff Kasuf. And with this little break in soccer, we've been able to say, hey, like, let us do this for you, NWSL. And so um, along with Lori Lindsay, us three are a big part of that show. And yeah, so just trying to do as much as I can. (laughs) That's what we like to hear. I'm super excited as someone who who gets to work with you on this project to see all the different areas you're exploring and going into producing a lot of really high quality stuff that I know myself personally and a lot of other people will enjoy listening to. I appreciate that. (laughs) But okay, we're not here to talk about Jordan's accolades and her projects. We're not here (laughs) to talk about my interview with Johan Dame last week. We are here to answer your questions. We've got a whole slate of them. So Jordan, I I think it's time to get into the first question. The first question is from at Half Spaces, aka Ben Harold. And he wants to know how similar is the system FC Dallas plays with Luchi Gonzalez to the U.S. under Greg Berhalter? And then the second part, which we'll get into, is how much would players playing in similar systems help the U.S. men's national team when they get together? Okay, so I think a good way to approach this question, Jordan, and stop me if you disagree, is to sort of look at the first half and to say, okay, let's look at how FC Dallas plays and let's look at how the U.S. under Berhalter are playing. So as long as you're okay with that, do you want to sort of give us a summary, an overview of how Lucha Gonzalez wants and has his FC Dallas team playing? 
Yeah, I'll I'll go there. And I, I kind of looked back at the games this season in the 2020 season to kind of look at Lucha Gonzalez and how he's developed his team and his squad as of right now. Right. And so uh, Gonzalez is a coach who wants to play a possession style. He's typically set up in a four three three or a four two three one, so it kind of morphs in between those 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 two systems. But in that four two three one, it's possession oriented. So he wants to build the ball up and manipulate the numbers in the build up. So how can he get defenders into one side of the field where the ball is, and then switch the point of attack quickly and and hopefully try to utilize space on the other side. So there's many ways that Gonzalez does this. I think one of the things we typically see is the two center backs will be comfortable building out of the back. Mm -hmm. Usually a holding mid of those two drops into a space either between the center backs or to the right or the left of the center back to create a three back and to push the outside backs higher on the field. What I found with Gonzalez is he he's kind of indifferent to how the outside backs attack. They can attack in the channel and he is okay with that, but they really read off of the attacker in front of them. So if the winger is really wide, they actually pick up the half space in between the central midfielder and the winger and almost attack in that internal channel, which is something we see a lot in soccer these days, especially um, I would say it's a little bit of the Pep Guardiola effect, Mm -hmm, which is super popular and really effective, right? Because that space, and we talked about it with Bobby a couple weeks ago, outside backs can be an additional attacker and maybe some of the most important attacking players on the field when you're trying to build up. So I... uh, I noticed that from the way that Gonzalez wants to attack. So it gives freedom to the person off the ball, whether it's the winger or the outside back, to decide which channel they want to occupy. And then that makes decisions for the defenders really difficult. I went back through and watched some of that FC Dallas footage as well. I watched them against Montreal Impact. And I remember a play, Jordan, where Reggie Cannon at that right back tucked inside almost into that half space that illustrated exactly what your point is, where he's inside. Michael Barrios was a little bit wider. And then they Mm -hmm. could just sort of decide, okay, where does that right-sided center back, or maybe it was Thiago Santos as a defensive midfielder over on that side playing the distributor. But they have that good spacing on the right side or on the left side with Ryan Hollingshead and the left winger, which I think is mostly Fafa Pico, or it was Mm -hmm. in those first two games. They have that well-spaced out attack that allows their distributors in the back to have lots of options. And that's that's something that we see with the U.S. as well. I think about a game against Mexico for the United States where it's Sergio Dest and Christian Pulisic on the left side. They're just kind of looking at each other, reading cues from one another to decide which vertical channel to position themselves in. And that really does benefit the United States, who, like Luchi Gonzalez and Dallas, want to play with the ball and they want to bring it out from the back and then use that well-spaced out possession setup to really move the ball forward into the attacking half. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that also is similar between the Berhalter and Gonzalez's mindset and how they want to implement some of their tactics on the field is because of those relationships and the understanding when the ball is lost, the positioning of the attack of the players that you had in attack, most of the players are pretty close to each other. So if the ball is lost, it's an immediate transition saying, okay, let's try to go win the ball back as quickly as possible with that counter pressing system. And I would say that's something that also 
also uh, is similar in the two styles that they play. Oh, absolutely. That's one of the things I had in my notes for the United States. I went through kind of each phase. So their possession phase, their, you know, their defensive mm-hmm. transition, their defensive phase and their offensive transition. In that defensive transition phase, after you lose the ball, counterpress is the first two words that I had. Actually, I can never decide if that's one word, if it's a hyphen in the middle or if there's a space, but I have counterpress. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. yes. I have, I have counterpress in my notes because I think that's so key for any team that wants mm-hmm. to hold on to the ball. If you're not counterpressing to win it back, you're losing opportunities to have more possessions. Right. So if the United States aren't counterpressing after they lose it, they're allowing the other team to gain possession of the ball, and that's what they want. And so that's definitely a parallel, another parallel between these two teams. We see it in the possession phase, and we definitely see it in the counterpressing phase as well. I have a question, uh, if you've noticed this with U.S. soccer under Burhalter is with Dallas, I notice if that initial counter press gets broken, so say Dallas has squeezed a team into their right side, they um, are building up on the right side, they lose the ball, they counter press, but then the ball gets played centrally. There's some kind of cue, and I don't know what it is. I don't know who's the decision maker in this, if it's a central midfielder, if it's one of those two holding midfielders, if it's a center back telling the team to drop. But there is an, there is an immediate if that counterpress doesn't work and it gets played out to switch the point of attack for the opposing team, Dallas retreats and they retreat back into a little bit of a more of a mid block. It's not a low block by any means, but they try to get everybody back behind the ball. And it's really fluid the way they do this. And I, I'm curious to know if that's something that you see from Burhalter too in that transition stage, if the counterpress is beat. To my eye, I think the United States defensive phases are still a work in progress for the U.S. Mm. So I'm not sure I've seen that sort of fluid transition between, okay, we're all into counterpressing. The other team now breaks it, and now we need to get back into our more disciplined, hard defensive shape. I don't think I've seen that transition quite as much. Also, it makes sense, too, in my mind, because Berhalter with a men's national team who you only meet for a few days Mm -hmm. before you're playing a game. You know, think about the two games that we saw from Dallas at the beginning of the year. Like you had a month and a half of preseason to train, you know, probably working on your defensive responsibilities first and foremost, because that is what a lot of teams build themselves off of. So they had been working on that. Okay, if we get beat, let's go back into this. And so that's probably why it's a little bit more fluid for them. I think the differences between coaching in a club and a national team environment are pretty extreme. And so we will yeah. see sometimes different priorities put in place by the different managers. But Jordan, right. I think from this sort of analysis of each team, we've been able to establish that both of these teams, the U.S. and Dallas, are committed to playing out of the back. They like to use the ball to disorganize the opposition. Mm-hmm. They'll use those positional interchanges, especially out wide between fullbacks and wingers. And sometimes we'll see the midfielders rotate as well. We'll see a lot of that stuff. One difference, if you'll indulge me just for a second, before we get to sort of the second half of Ben's question or the second question that Ben asked us, the one difference that I really noticed between these two possession shapes was in how they structured their back line. You talked about Jordan having that defensive midfielder drop between or next to the center backs, forming mm-hmm. that three at the back shape. That's something that I don't think we've seen nearly as much with the national team as we've seen with Lucha Gonzalez's FC Dallas. We used to see it with Berhalter with the crew. Back mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, Will Trapp would always drop between, not always, but very often would drop between the two center backs or next to the center backs to form that back three. Berhalter's kind of gone away with that with the national team just because, you know, maybe he wants to preserve the numbers in midfield to to be able to counterpress a little bit more. Or maybe he just sees something different that he likes as far as creating patterns or creating a consistent possession setup. But that's just one little difference that I wanted to point out that I thought was interesting when watching film. 
Do you think he can also adapt that? Because when you're choosing your men's national team, you are choosing the best center backs that you have. So you can trust that those center backs have the ability to maybe cover the space in behind them Mm -hmm. with less help next to them. Because, you know, part of the reason that you drop that that midfielder in is, okay, if you're pushing your outside backs high, then you have two center backs that are holding and occupying that space. If there is a counter, then there's a lot of space for those two center backs to cover, right? So that holding mid who drops back in allows for a little, you know, dividing that space up a little bit more. But if you don't drop that player in and you keep them a little bit higher in midfield and try to use the numbers and manipulate the numbers more in that midfield area. But those center backs are the two that you choose, the two best ones in the U.S. at that time. Right. So I think that 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 could be maybe a little bit of a reason why he has gone away with it. That's definitely a possibility. You think about a guy like Aaron Long, who's played so many games for the United States as either the left center back or the right center back. When you have players like that at center back who can cover ground defensively, maybe there is less of a need to drop that central defensive midfielder into that space between them or next to Mm -hmm. them. And you can just trust your two central defenders to clean up that space. I think that's a great point. I don't know. Just something that popped up in my head. So that's the first half of this question. That's the first question that Half Spaces, a.k.a. Ben Harold, asked us. The second question, which we'll move through quickly, is just how much would players playing in similar systems help the United States when they get together? Jordan, you've you know participated in youth national team setups before. How helpful is it having players who are on the same page come into camp at the same time instead of people maybe who come in with different playing styles and different backgrounds about how they think about the game? I think there's a positive and negatives, right? And I, that's something that we've seen from U.S. soccer over the last, uh, I don't know, handful of years is all the youth teams are playing the same system, a 4-3-3, and they're learning the responsibilities of a 4-3-3. So if you're building up, at least on the, on the women's side, I know that that was something that everybody was playing for a long time is you're playing a 4-3-3 because that's what, um, those youth national team coaches are coaching. And I think it's good. I think that there it creates cohesion, right? You know, the responsibilities, you know, the roles of at least one position, maybe multiple positions within that setup. But what I think it takes away from is for me personally, I like the ability for people to be free thinkers and Mm. to come in with some creativity. And I think if you're using too much of the same thing, then you don't see where opportunities could then arise. So if everybody sees it, the game in a 4-3-3 setup, then someone that plays in a 4-4-2 could be really good at occupying those half spaces that we just were talking about. Maybe a winger in a a 4-3-3 doesn't see those half spaces as important because they're playing so wide all the time. I think that there's just some good and some bad with everybody playing in the same system. That's a really interesting point because I think I took this question maybe improperly more as do we want players who have kind of the same skill set from playing in similar styles and maybe instead of systems or formations, like maybe with the U.S. men's national team, having guys like Jesus Ferreira and Reggie Cannon and Paxton Palmacal and, you know, Serginho Dest coming obviously from Europe, but who plays, who all play in more, you know, ball oriented styles where they want to have the ball and they want to have possession. Mm -hmm. I think maybe bringing those players into the national team fold would help Greg Berhalter because that allows him to have more guys who know how to play with the ball and know how to move without the ball. But you're so right, Jordan, like having that variety of experiences and backgrounds at a club level helps you see the game in a 
in a wider way. It allows you to yeah. see more opportunities when if everyone's thinking the same way, maybe you won't have those same opportunities. So I think you've sort of changed my perspective on this question with your answer is I think there are benefits and it is helpful yeah. to get, have guys who have these skills that you need for the national team. Like I think that's important, but also maybe you want some variety in, in your backgrounds and maybe you want some players who are playing in a different place like Weston McKinney with Schalke who don't play a lot with the ball for David Wagner, but maybe having those varied backgrounds is helpful. Well, even just that exact example that you're just saying, how amazing do you think that McKenney thinks playing with the ball is then because he does so much work mm-hmm. without the ball in his club system that when he's on the ball and he's playing in a different system, he's probably just like, oh, this is amazing, right? I get to do something so different, but right. still be true to who he is and like still compete at a level where he knows he's capable of competing. But it just brings, you know, soccer is so multifaceted that I think if you say everybody must be in a similar system to understand, I just don't think that's true. Yeah, I think that's a great way to end this question. Half spaces. Thanks for the question. Jordan, let's move on to number two. This one is from JDB who asks, what player is the tactical ideal as a free kick or corner taker? Is having a defender as a taker a la Trent Alexander-Arnold for Liverpool an advantage? Jordan, what do you think about this question? Is it better to have specific players or people who play specific positions taking set pieces? This made me think because I don't really think it's something that I've ever thought about from a tactical standpoint. So all I can really speak to on this is what my experience was like as a player. And as a player, and I mentioned it in the first answer too, you're always as a team looking to figure out advantages where you can uh, either manipulate the space, the ball in order to then utilize the space that you actually want to take advantage of. But it's all about finding the advantage against the other team. And so for me, who was serving the ball had to be a person that could create an advantage in that situation. I didn't think of it as like, oh, an outside back can be a better tactical advantage to take a corner kick. I thought, who can send an in-swinger with their right foot off of a corner and then on the opposite side is an outswinger and in-swinger important? So if we have a corner kick taker who is really good with their right foot, do we want all of the services to be with the right foot or do we want only end swinger? So then that switches. You have a right foot on one side and you have a left footed player on the other side. Yeah, I think that's totally fair with with the example that JDB used in the question, Trent Alexander-Arnold. I think the reason why we see him take free kicks for Liverpool is less to do with the fact that he's a defender and more to do with the fact that he can hit a ball. Right. Perfect. He can, he yeah. can strike the ball on a dime. I swear 99 times out of a hundred, 999 times out of a thousand. Right. Well, that's he, what he does all game. Exactly. From right back, he does it up and down that right flank the entire game. And so having him go and take a corner kick, I don't remember. I haven't seen enough of Liverpool to say whether he takes out swingers with his right foot on the right side or in swingers with his right foot on the left side. Maybe he does both depending on the situation. I don't know, but I do think you're right there, Jordan. I think you want to look for the qualities that are specific to your set piece takers. You want them to hit clean balls. You want them to have the ability to play them with pace into the box or have them maybe be able to combine and know those short set piece routines. Mm -hmm. You want accuracy. You want the quality on the ball. You want all of those factors, maybe more so than you want any specific position necessarily doing that one little sort of galaxy brain thing that i thought about when thinking about this question if if there was a way 
to guarantee that you wouldn't be counterattacked on. And that's a whole other discussion as to how to do that. But if there's a way that you can say, okay, we're going to take a corner kick and we're going to stop the counter guaranteed 100% of the time or 99% of the time, having your goalkeeper take that corner kick would theoretically give you an man advantage in the attacking half, in the attacking third, in the box, right? Because the goalkeeper is that 11th player. Usually the, the attacking team is dealing with 10 v 11 if they're bringing everyone up because their goalkeeper is still in the back. But then you bring one more guy forward. If your goalkeeper can hit a ball in, maybe it's Allison, maybe it's Adairson in the Premier League using those teams as an example, Liverpool and Manchester City. I don't know if it's possible. I highly doubt that it is. But theoretically, adding an extra number into the attack is where advantages come from so often, right? So why not have your goalkeeper go up, take the corner kick? It'll take him forever to get there. But have him jog up the field, take the corner, live with that man advantage and see what happens. Will it happen? Absolutely not. But I did think about it. Yeah, and... I mean, I guess that all just depends. Do they play with marker people that protect the near post and the far post like or protect those spaces? Because if they don't, then it's just man for man in the box. Right. Because the goalkeeper will be free. And I don't know. That's a really interesting. Because we always see goalkeepers like in late game situations when a team's down a goal, we see them go into the box. And I'm like, what is the goalkeeper going to do most times? Like they don't I feel like they don't know how to attack the ball in the box. Right. Oh my gosh. Well, you need to see Michelle Beto's circa <laughs> NWSL. 2015, I think it was, scored a tying goal from a diving header as the goalkeeper oh, at it's beautiful. Portland. At Portland in front of the Rose City Riveters. It was just like, I'll, I'll, I'll tag that corner kick and that goal by the goalkeeper. But yeah. I guess that could give you an advantage there. <laughs> Just a thought. I think, I think that about does it. Yeah. I've gone, I've gone wacky enough on JDB's question. Jordan, I think it's time to get into our first sponsor. Yeah, Joe, let's do it. Okay, so so on today's show, we have Hydrant as our sponsor. We're very thankful for Hydrant for sponsoring today's show. To sort of let you know about the value of Hydrant, I want to tie this back into a set-piece story. So down here in Phoenix, we have Phoenix Rising playing in USL, a fantastic team, fantastic USL team. I've spent a decent amount of time covering them. A couple of seasons back, Phoenix was down a goal late in the second half. And who other than Didier Drogba, who played his last couple of seasons of professional soccer here in Phoenix, goes over to take the corner? Because of the way that Phoenix Rising soccer field is structured, there are some small little tables over by the corner flag that people will sit in to watch the game from the sidelines. As Drogba is getting ready to go take the corner, he walks over to the table and takes a swig of water out of a little kid's water bottle and has this kind of moment with the little kid. He then serves the ball, puts it right on his teammate's head. The teammate heads it into the back of the net to level the score. Phoenix goes on to win that game. It starts with water, right? Maybe the key to set pieces isn't bringing your goalkeeper up to take the corner kick. I don't think that was ever really in question. But maybe the key to set pieces <laughs> is being hydrated. That's that's my theory here, and I think Hydrant helps out a lot with that. Uh, absolutely. And you didn't mention Drogba then, after the corner kick, poured the rest of the water <laughs> on top of his head. But Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mixed directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs. And Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by Oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. The formula is vegan and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply and you can save even more with a monthly subscription. Now, I don't think that the water that Drogba sipped from and then poured on his 
had had hydrant in it, but maybe if it had, <laughs> it would have been an Olympico straight into the top right corner of the goal. Like maybe that would have elevated him to the next level. That's that's I just a thought. It. Thank you again for Hydrant for sponsoring today's show. For 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code soccer at checkout. That's drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code soccer for 25% off your first order. Jordan, let's move on to our next question. We've been on a roll here. Yeah, let's get to it. This next one is from Jeffrin, who says, I recently heard the thought that any tactical system can work if given enough time or enough seasons to implement it and with the right players in that system. Do you guys have any thoughts on this? Are there some tactical systems that are inherently better or worse than others? Or is the implementation more important? There's a lot to get to there. Mm. Jordan, just to start, your preliminary thoughts on this idea that any tactical system can work if you give it enough time and have the right players. Well, my initial thought is, well, how much time do you get? (laughs) And how much money do you have to get the right players, right? Right. Because you can bring in players. If you get a couple seasons, that gives you, I mean, just think two seasons. You have two transfer windows. That's maybe four, five, six players that you can bring in or switch through your team. And if you can switch six players who are the bulk of your team, you can switch how you want to play tactically. I mean, I don't disagree with this, but I just don't know if it's realistic in the modern game with the pressures of performance and results into the longevity of coaches and the teams that they have. And that's a great jumping off point. You know, last week in my conversation with Johan Dame, he mentioned something along the lines of, and I can't remember exactly what it was. I need to go back and listen to it. But talking about how players or teams are at an inherent advantage when they've been playing in the same system for a longer amount of time, right? We've seen in Cincinnati, we've seen Alan Koch come in and come out. We've seen Ron Jans come in and come out. And now Johan Dame is at the helm again, waiting for a new coach to come in. Cincinnati, as a result of all those changes, is at a disadvantage. I think that's clear. So the idea behind the thought that Jeffrey is talking about, I think is sound. The idea that you mm-hmm. want to give time for systems and, and for players to gel. I think that's all accurate. It's just a matter of what you said, Jordan. Is that even realistic at all in the modern game? And right. I'm afraid that even in a league like MLS, when there's no relegation, it seems to me that that's still not actually put into practice. Two points with that. One, when you have a team that plays a certain a certain way over a period of time, it is easier for players to adapt to how they play. Think of New York Red Bulls for a long time. They, this is how they they had a style of play. So no matter who came into the squad, they already knew what it was going to be like mm-hmm. to be a member of that squad. Their culture and their ideals of how to play were so ingrained in who they were. But then I think of, you know, for me personally, working with the Colorado Rapids for the last few years, I think of the 2018 season and Hudson, Anthony Hudson came in and he wanted to play a three back, a three, five, two. He wanted to play this type of system, but we just did not have the personnel to play that system. And I think that there was a give and take there, right? There are going to be growing pains when you try to switch the style of play that you have or the system that you want to implement. But if there is no... If you don't have the players to play that system, the results are not going to go your way. And what's going to happen is you're going to have to adapt to your players. So for me, I kind of... I kind of started to look at this as like going into the second part of the question. Are some tactical systems better or worse or is the implementation more important? And I think that's the key here, Joe, is I think in order to implement something, you have to develop a culture where people want to adapt to a tactical system. So you could be a player and I've been a player where I've played in different tactical systems. But if I'm bought in into what the coach is 
telling me. And if the team is bought into it, then you can adapt in a way that isn't, doesn't create so much of those growing pains. There's still going to be growing pains, right? There's, there's never been a soccer game that's been perfect. So there's <laughs> going to be mistakes all over the place, but it's just your willingness to buy in and that leadership and leadership and culture by, might to me be more important than running a certain system when you're talking about uh, the players that you have. Can you lead them in a way to adapt to the system that you want? I think that can provide maybe some different results. Do you think kind of setting that aside that some tactical systems are inherently better or worse than others? Like, is there a style of play that if all things are equal, you plug in the best players suited for that style and you take away the pressures of the of the real life soccer environment at its core? Are there some tactical systems that have advantages over others? I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> That's I mean, honestly, in my notes, the first thing I have is I think maybe I don't I don't know. Right. It's this yeah. interesting question. And this was a fun thought exercise for me. I think I focus more on this part than I did on the first part, because I was curious to hear your thoughts. Just the idea of of not knowing this. Right. Like you look at a team like LAFC and MLS or Phoenix, as I just mentioned in the hydrant you know, conversation, Phoenix and USL or any really of Pep's big teams in Europe over the last you know 10 years or mm-hmm. so. We see those teams as teams that dominate the ball and press to win it back. We also see those teams win a lot of games. But is that just because they have better players than the opposition? Yes, they do. But I also think that there is a leadership and a culture aspect that is also involved in that and so deeply ingrained into who those coaches are that I think it goes back to that idea of I don't know if the tactical system matters as much as the culture matters. Right. And that's totally fair, right? Because the counter argument to the argument that I just made, in addition to the the counter argument that you just provided, is <laughs> that we see LAFC go deep in the playoffs last year. And then Seattle comes and they sit in a disciplined defensive block and they beat them, right? They win the ball. They mm-hmm. don't let Diego Rossi and Carlos Vela control the ball on the wings. They shut down the wings and they move and they counterattack and have their best players go to work in transition, right? So we see LAFC dominate a lot of games with their style. And then we see Seattle come in and take that away. And we've seen that happen over and over again with these big teams meeting up against teams who sit a little bit deeper. So that's why like, I'm just genuinely not sure that there is a tactical system that's inherently better or worse than others. Because for every every 2020 Bob Bradley team who plays like LAFC do that gets out and controls the ball, there's like a 2020 Bruce Arena team that doesn't let you do that and just takes the ball from you and counterattacks right down your throat in transition. So I, I honestly don't know that there's a way to answer this question. I think this argument will go on forever, but culture might be the the overriding principle that governs whether your team was a consistent success or not. Right. All right. I like it. Jordan, why (laughs) Perfect. Lead us into the next question. You got it. (laughs) We're moving on. Uh, Seth Detler wants to know, what's your preferred and least preferred formation? Okay, I'm going to lead in with the classic formation disclaimer that I like to give on the show whenever we talk about formations as a concept. It's that formations are really fluid, and I'm not sure that around the soccer world and the professional world that a lot of people think of them in the same sort of static way that we do. Yeah. But I think this is still a really fun question, and so we're going to talk about it. Um, So now that I've got that disclaimer out of the way, I'm going to actually answer Seth's question, or at least the first half of it. I love the flexibility of a 4-3-3. I'm really sorry. It's so basic, I feel like. But just the interchanges that are able to happen, we talked about it with the U.S. and Dallas at the top of this, the interchanges between the fullbacks and the wingers. If you're feeling edgy, you might throw a central midfielder in there as well. The CDM can drop deep between the center backs, and then the center backs can push forward and the attack if you're feeling really edgy. Like, there's mm-hmm. so many different things the nine can drop yeah. in. There's just dozens and dozens of combinations because the 4-3-3 on paper in its static form is able to be so flexible because you can move pieces around and just swap other pieces into the first spots. You can do almost anything with a 4-3-3, and that's something that I like about it. 
I think we should say this. I, I don't think we said it at the beginning of the podcast, but you and I did not share our notes. We didn't we didn't talk about nope. we had the questions and then we were like, OK, we'll just bring answers to this podcast. And I my, literally my answer was I love a 433 <laughs> with different variations. No way. And I just think that there are so many things that you can get out of a 433. It can be a 4231. It can be a 4141. It can look sometimes like a 343, you know, because of a center midfielder dropping in to the back line. That's three players. Then you have your other two center midfielders with your outside backs and the four and then your three front runners. Like there are so many things that it can look like that. Its ability to adapt really hits at what I love most about soccer is that it is just a a game where there are so many decisions to be made in a split second. If you have more ability to think fluidly in situations and know, okay, we can adapt in this way. We can switch into this formation to help us occupy a little bit higher on the field. Maybe go to 4141, right? So get a little bit more pressure higher up on the field if we're not worried about that space right in front of our center backs. If we're worried about that space in front of our center our backs we can drop two players into those defensive spots there's just so much fluidity in it so i that was my first thought but joe (laughs) joe this is funny because you and i both were watching back we didn't know this either because i was doing fc dallas to start the show i watched back that game against montreal and we talked a lot about thierry henry before the season and what he's going to bring and his his managerial experience and i started watching montreal and I was like, I kind of like how they're playing. Like, this might be my new favorite. They're playing a 3-4-3, but it's really a five back when they're def- defending right. with the ability for the front five to just go. It's almost like a five and five. Yeah, it's really split. I like that divide a lot. It's the first time I've thought about it in that way. But you're right. The five defenders and the five attackers, there is sort of that that weird, like the ball bouncing back and forth between those two phases. That's fun to watch. Yeah, it's it's really unique. And I would say... In general, my least preferred formation, I don't I don't know what that would be. I think I don't understand a 352 enough. Like I need to dig into it a little bit more for my own understanding or a three back in general. Like even a 343, like my idea of a 343 is playing against North Carolina when I was in college and North Carolina plays a 343 and they have forever and they are just like pressure, 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 pressure. And that's all I think of, of a 3-4-3. But watching Henri and Montreal Impact play this way, I kind of feel like my my ideas of it are changing. And we're seeing some more three-at-the-back shapes in MLS. And I remember in our preseason previews of the new coaches, we were trying to think about teams that actually played three center backs, and we didn't come up with a lot of them. But we're seeing more and more, like Atlanta, Montreal. We're seeing it with Chicago sometimes. I think Robin Frazier, in an interview I did with him over the summer, he told me that his most preferred formation is with three-at-the-back, either as a 3-4-3 or a 3-5-2. So I do think we're going to see more MLS teams play in that way. And so maybe we need to have just a growing understanding of that shape as well. And I'm excited about that because I do want to understand it more just from my playing experience and what I know about the game from a a playing standpoint. I never played in that. So I Hmm. want to know more about it. And I think the more we can I can see it and watch it being played out, the more I'm going to understand it. So I wouldn't say it's my least preferred, but it's just the one that I don't know as much of. So, um, I mean, Football is football. Soccer is soccer. I just I just want to know more about it. So I can't say I have a least preferred. (laughs) I like it. I'm not going to be harsh enough to have a least preferred formation either. I think they all have their advantages and their weaknesses. Something that only has advantages, Jordan, is our second sponsor on today's show. This is Podium Wear. Why don't you tell us a little bit about this company? 
Of course, Podiumware is a custom team apparel manufacturer in Minnesota that is turning the world of team soccer kit ordering on its head. They provide custom designs and a full line of soccer apparel made to order in their St. Paul factory. In normal times, we talk about how great this process is and how your experience ordering for your kids' club teams will be made infinitely easier by them. But these aren't normal times, Joe. Hmm. Because of the COVID-19 crisis, Podiumware has started making face masks for you to wear when you're out and about on the sideline of a soccer match or even during your workout. And Jordan, I was on the website earlier just looking at the products that they have, both the soccer products and the face masks that they're rolling out. And it's so easy to use. This website is so easy. In, in just three clicks, I was already looking through all of their soccer products with the face masks right at the top. I mean, you can put any design you want on these things. They are customizable. You want to rep your favorite MLS team or the U.S. men's or women's national team? You can do that with these face masks. You also want to limit the spread of COVID-19? You can do that with one of these masks as well. So when normal times resume, think of Podium Wear first for your or your kids' soccer kits. But for now, go ahead and visit them for masks to wear out and about. Go to PodiumWear.com and get your custom mask today, and then bookmark them for when you're ready for your first, next soccer kit order. That's PodiumWear.com. Go check them out today. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Thank you to PodiumWear for sponsoring today's show. Now that we uh, know where we're getting our face masks, Joe, I think we're going to finish out these questions from our listeners for this week's show. Let's do it. Okay. So David Ruffin wants to know, he's a new soccer fan, and what is the basic strategy behind substitutions? Is it more pre-planned or specific in-game moments or both? So I think there are a few basic reasons behind why substitutions happen. So I think number one, at least in the way I thought of it, is to get more energy on the field, right? You need fresh Mm -hmm. legs. You have a player who's tired. Bring on someone who can replace that and and have some more energy on the field. So that's number one. Another one is just a player isn't playing well. Somebody's out of form and you need someone to come in and give your team a boost that you're just not getting with that player who's already on the field. Then you've got potentially changing the shape of of a team's formation by adding another attacker or midfielder or defender, whatever it is to change maybe from a 4-3-3 to a 3-4-3 or, you know, whatever it is. You want to change the shape. Sometimes you can make that happen. The last thing that I wrote down for reasons why this might happen is something that I wanted to ask you, Jordan. Mm -hmm. Are subs used very often to deliver instructions to the other players on the field? Like sometimes I know on TV, we'll see like notes that they come and carry and like they have in their shin guard or in their sock or whatever, and they show it to someone. Is that a thing? Or do we just see that so rarely that it's not really a reason behind substitutions? Well, if you're coming in as a sub, you're usually coming in with some kind of information. Hmm. So I don't think that it's typically used in that sense. But I think that if you're coming from a place where you're in close contact with the coach and then hopping onto the field, if you bring no information to your teammates, you're kind of not really using that moment to that, to the advantage. So yeah, I do think that is something that can happen and something that people use that moment, that actual substitution moment for. I think there's just another, like if a team is up a goal, you might make a tactical change and bring off one of, you know, if you're playing with two strikers, you Mm. might bring off a striker and bring in a more defensive midfield type player to sure up that space that is most dangerous right in front of your center backs to cut off the passing lanes into the front runners for the other team. So that's the situation. If you're down a goal, you're definitely taking a defender out to bring in a forward, which speaks to your energy comment as well. You know, you want to try to boost the energy, especially going forward. And especially for, you know, there's players in leagues who are just players that play in those moments when their team is down a goal, when their team needs a game tying goal or a game winning goal, they get brought in because they can sit on the bench for 60, 70 minutes and they can watch and see how the team is 
defending and how they can go in and properly disrupt that defensive structure. Uh, I think of Alan Gordon, right? Yeah. Alan Gordon mm-hmm. did that for years, just coming in and saying, all right, I'm going to go score a goal against you because I've been watching you. And, and typically teams don't change their back line. They don't substitute their back line because there is a real cohesion that right. happens in the back line that you want to keep throughout the game. So you're bringing fresh legs on against tired legs in a defensive back line. And so that's kind of something that can happen, too. I think the one last thing I want to mention is there could be a mismatch in system. And I saw this happen. I wish I could remember the exact game for the Colorado Rapids. I think it was in the 2018 season where... The Rapids have been preparing all week for their game and they got into the game and the team that they were playing against changed how they were playing. So they they switched up their tactics. So what Colorado had been preparing for was different. So they in the first half, they made a sub about 20 minutes into the game, which is doesn't happen very often. But that was because there was a mismatch in the system that they in the tactics that they were trying to play. And it wasn't because of lack of preparation. It was almost because um, they had to adapt in order to not let the game get away from them. And I think it was a really smart substitution and, uh, you know, a ballsy substitution to take a player out that early in the game and say, hey, this is going to be better for us in the long run. So substitutions can happen like that as well. And I I think to sort of, you know, tie a little bow on this discussion, there's some ongoing talk spearheaded by the analytics community for soccer about when the best time for substitutions are, like to statistically prove you have a better chance of scoring a goal or to coming back or to cutting the deficit when you substitute at this time or this time. It's earlier, I think, than a lot of what we would normally expect, right? You're talking about this first half substitution. Most often that's not going to happen in games, right? But sometimes right. substitutions should happen a little bit earlier than maybe the 70th minute or the 80th minute when you're down a goal. There have been suggestions that halftime is a good time for a substitution statistically or that maybe just before the the 60th minute is the best time for the first sub. So there's lots of ongoing discussion about when the best time for sort of a pre-planned move or maybe a move that you've identified in the game that needs to happen. There's been plenty of talk about that. I'm, I don't think that's wrong either, because from my experience playing in games where I've been substituted in later in the game, it is very hard to go in there and make any kind of difference because you almost like I remember that feeling of feeling like I had to sprint everywhere and do mm. all this work and like almost like a chicken with his head cut off because like you're just like trying to make a difference, trying to make a difference instead of getting into the game, say with 30 minutes, 35 minutes left, you're able to then get in there, get those first few minutes where you're running hard, getting your adrenaline up to speed with the tempo of the game, then you can have the rest of that 30, 25 minutes to really start to do what you're trying to do, which is change the way your team is playing and help them find a way to win. And that's something that's so interesting to me. I think just that idea of having players, of giving players enough time to get acclimated. I was watching a Gold Cup game from 2017 that was rerunning on, you know, FS1 a week or two ago, whatever it was. It doesn't matter. And as the second half went on, the U.S. was was either down or tied. And the cameras panned to Clint Dempsey warming up over on the sideline. And you know, Stu Holden, John Strong, and I think Landon Donovan was commentating that game as well. So the three of them were in the booth talking about how Bruce had told them the day before that Clint Dempsey was going to come in if the team was trailing or needed a goal right around the 60th minute. And sure enough, he comes in at the 55th minute. So that's 35 minutes mm-hmm. to get Clint Dempsey in the game, to get him acclimated and to eventually push for that goal. And the U.S. eventually came back to win that game. Jordan Moore scored late in that match. Yeah. So that's a very that's only one data point. But that sort of speaks to what you're talking about, Jordan, of giving guys, giving them enough time to acclimate and get into the game and really have an impact on the attack. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good example, Joe. 
especially one more thing on this before we get into the next question. This kind of does relate with FIFA's temporary new rule of allowing five subs in a match instead of three. I think it's going to be interesting to see how teams use or, or don't use those extra resources to their advantage and maybe bring some subs in a little bit earlier. Yeah, I'm still trying to wrap my head around this <laughs> extra sub thing. Um, because if you think about it, if you have five substitutions, you can change your three front. If you're playing a four through three, you can change your three front runners and your two attacking midfielders. Crazy. It's going to change a lot, I think, if we see coaches actually buy into it. Well, don't you think you would be silly if the number of games stays the same with less rest? You would be silly not to utilize it. But it changes it so much, Joe. I don't think people understand how much that can change the game. And that sort of speaks to the the last question that we're going to talk about on today's show. This one's from Kevin Minkus, who asks, What tactical differences will we see if MLS plays out the season with expanded rosters and a congested schedule? So he's not necessarily talking about subs directly, but the way I sort of interpreted this question was just thinking about how the MLS season could actually play out with some tweaked rules and with games coming harder and faster. Are we going to see any really on-field tactical differences? Absolutely. I don't, I don't know how you couldn't, hmm. could, how you, yeah, couldn't. Because if you're just doing those two things, games are happening more often. You have l- larger rosters and more substitutions. You could go into one game and you could say, okay, we have to get three, we have to get three points out of this game. Right. So you're playing the most aggressive style you can play, high pressing, winning the ball back, energy, 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 five substitutions in that game. Um, okay, so you're getting some fitness from some other players, right? That are maybe those later subs. So players are staying engaged in games. Then you go to the next game and you're like, all we need is a draw out of this. Okay, let's sit in a low block. Let's put all our defensive players in. Hmm. Let's sit in a low block. Let's do exactly almost the opposite of what we did and see if we can get a point out of it. I don't know. I'm not a coach in MLS, so I don't know what coaches go in. I I know I have heard of some coaches who look at their whole entire season and they say, this is what we need out of these games. A point, three points, a point. We don't have to win this game. You know, like they'll literally go and say what what points they need to get to where they need to be. So they might have a more understanding of what they need out of each game in order to get to the place where whatever playoffs look like, whatever, you know, making it to the next step looks like. I just I think it's going to change a lot. I thought about this for a while and I thought about the different ways that things could play out if we do get games back in a congested way. And essentially all my notes boil down to the fact (laughs) that I think we could see at least an occasional tactical regression in a way. Like we see teams want to play this really energetic style or, Mm -hmm. you know, we think of teams that want to get out and be in your face, both offensively and defensively. Maybe we're going to see that in some games, but maybe in other games, like you're saying, we see them play a simpler style and we see them sit deeper. And so essentially the the impact that I'm thinking we could see is really on the defensive side. Maybe we'll see yeah. teams press on and off. Maybe there'll be more distinct cues between pressing and not pressing, or maybe those those things will differ by game to game. Defensively, especially, is an area that we see so much energy used up by teams, and we see a lot of miles put on the legs moving to press and to step high into the attacking half to right. defend. And it's hard, right? That takes a lot out of you. So we might see less of that, I think, is what kind of I decided. Yeah, and I think there could be a bigger advantage for teams who are very possession-oriented because of what you just said. Hmm less defensive work. You're putting more defensive work on the other team. Therefore, their miles per game are probably going to increase if you have games in quicker succession, then you're doing that over and over again. I think that there might be a 
bigger advantage than normal to teams who are possession oriented. And I, I don't necessarily think that this is going to be the case, but I also wonder if teams like Nashville and Minnesota or even New England, who tend to sit in a little bit more of a compact defensive block in every game, if we'll see those teams be able to play that way consistently and just use that identity that'll be the same whether the games are compressed, whether they're at a normal rate of like once a week. I wonder if we'll see those teams be able to just continue to work on their consistent identity and really just come out on top of this whole thing just because that's how they play all the time. Gosh, just even talking about it makes me want season to happen. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I'm in the same boat and I think all of our listeners are in the same boat as well. Jordan, yeah. I think we've gone through all these questions in a pretty detailed way. I'm pretty happy with our answers. Listeners, thank you guys so much for yeah. for submitting questions. This stuff was interesting to think about and I'm really thankful that you guys all took the time to submit us some pretty fantastic questions. Yeah, thank you guys so much and I'm right there with you, Joe. They made me think and you know, Joe knows better than ever. When I feel uh, like questions make me really think, I come into the podcast and I'm like, oh, gosh. <laughs> OK, here we go. And but the more this is what I also appreciate about it is you guys ask questions and then Joe and I have the ability to go back and forth and chat about them. And I learned just as much from Joe from his answers as I did from even thinking about what I wanted to say. So, uh, yeah, you guys crushed it with those questions. Jordan, I think that covers it pretty well. It was great chatting with you this week, and I'm looking forward to the next time we sit down to do it. Yeah, thanks so much, Joe. Thank you, guys, and we'll talk to you next week. 